And you've, you've probably been almost as many places as I have been in the last few weeks. Uh, we were in New Jersey, New York, we drove through Vermont, in New Hampshire. Actually, we stopped in Vermont a couple times. So uh, we've been everywhere. I slept in six different beds. Uh, Jaden slept basically in eight or nine. We lost track of how many beds she slept in. Um, it is good to be back home. And in many ways, for my soul, it is good to be back in James. So uh, we're only going to do two verses this morning. Chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Hear the word of our God this morning. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Father, we need your spirit for both the preaching of the word and the hearing of the word. So I ask that he may be at work in us, that we might be reminded of what Christ has done for us, that we might rejoice in what Christ is doing in us, and that we might respond to what Christ does through us. Transform us with gospel-centered truth this morning. In the name of Him who saves us by having been forsaken for us. Amen. Something unusual happened while we were on vacation. There was a trial. And some of you may have been glued to the TV set if you had nothing better to do with your lives. I knew many people who were glued to this TV set watching the trial that took place in Orlando, Florida. And I think right now you recognize what trial I'm talking about. We didn't watch any of this trial, but we heard that the verdict was about to be announced. So we sat down in front of the TV and listened, wondering. The jury was not out very long, and so we're thinking, she's probably found guilty. But lo and behold... The verdict was announced, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, until finally some inconsequential sorts of things popped up where she was guilty of not providing truthful information to the police. And the the backlash was amazing. Two aspects to this. One was sitting with a friend of mine who watched far more of the trial than I did and uh, hearing about some of the things that were used to create reasonable doubt in the minds of the jurors. And I personally was shocked that the judge actually allowed, actually that the prosecutor allowed these accusations against the parents to be raised without any evidence. I was just as shocked to read on my Facebook of how many Christians were condemning this person. Both of those aspects, I think, are at work in this text this morning. Justification, that doctrine we talk about, is one that replaces condemnation with commendation. That's a big idea for the morning. The problem, as I see it, or as James sees it, is that pride condemns others. Primarily, verse 11 in uh, these two verses. 
James begins uh, this series of seemingly unconnected instructions. But if we pay careful attention, I think what we find is not that they're disconnected, even though James is sort of reaching back into chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and pulling some threads together in this very passage. But really, what goes through all of these is pride. Manifestations of pride. And this is but one of them. Some people, out of pride, it seems, in this, this, this young community of Christians, had a ministry of condemnation. Now, Jesus, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, has given us a ministry of reconciliation. But this group of people seem to be more interested in condemning and destroying others instead of seeing them reconciled to God. I'm reminded of Wolfboro Baptist Church. They seem to revel in this notion of we're there to talk about everything that God hates and and not talk about Christ crucified for sinners that he might save them. That's a ministry of condemnation. Not a ministry of reconciliation. We see this in two phrases that are words that are repeatedly used in this text. And the first is translated to speak against it is used in various forms, both in uh, uh, different noun, uh, nouns, Ugh. regular verbs and participles. That's what it is, because a participle serves as a noun. There's your little grammar lesson for the day. Um, it's used three. It's used uh, four times in two verses. There's an emphasis on this idea of speaking against, but to speak against this this word is not merely to disagree with somebody. Okay? It's not to say, oh, you're wrong, but really what this, the idea of this word is, is to defame. It is to slander, which is why the NIV translates uh, it as slander in some of the uses in the, in the passage. They're not consistent in their use, so it, it's funny that way. Um, but it can also be used to speak evil of somebody. Okay, so what is going on is that in this, this church, okay, they're speaking evil of their brothers in Christ, which is emphasized by, he's using it three times in this passage. They're not just, they're not speaking badly. They're not criticizing those outside of the church. They are criticizing and attacking those inside the church. They're brothers in Christ. And their neighbor which is how the the text ends with this idea of neighbor. Sort of, It should be bringing to mind one of the great commandments to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? Condemning their brothers and sisters in Christ. Not only that, but they judge. Six times this word is used in two verses. James is really hitting this because this apparently was a big problem for this Christian community. Now, to judge can mean to distinguish. You know, uh, this is good and this is not so good. You know, uh, I like Cheerios. I don't like, I don't know. I'm not even sure what cereal I don't even like. But this is, you know, 
Say, I like this, I don't like that. We got our bountiful basket yesterday. There's stuff in there I like. The strawberries, like. Eggplant, don't like. Okay? Keep that in mind if you have me over for dinner. All right? Okay. So, what's going on here, however, is in a legal context, it is more the idea to condemn somebody. So beyond this is right and this is wrong, this is really what they're going is to this whole idea of condemnation. They're speaking against their brothers in such a way as to condemn their brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Okay, this is a serious problem. Okay, we're not talking about the admonishment that was mentioned in the Heidelberg Catechism. We're not talking here about the rebuke that must take place. We're not talking about church discipline. Okay? James would be going, do those. Important stuff. But what he is talking about is the individual Christian who acts as if he alone holds the keys to heaven and speaks that way. Condemning brothers and sisters. Self-justification is a topic that kept popping up as I was listening to sermons on my study leave and taking long walks with these other men of God. This idea of self-justification really kind of shows up in two ways. One way can be elevating yourself, which is a manifestation of pride, but it can also show up in another way, attacking other people. In one of his books, uh, the author Don Miller talks about how because of the fall, it's almost like we're, we're, we live in this, this game of lifeboat. And in order to stay in the boat, we have to either prove how good we are and how valuable we are and how important we are so that everybody wants us to stay in the boat. We have to be useful, right? Or at least liked and loved. But if there's not much that is useful about us, then our strategy ends up being tearing down the others so that they get tossed out, so that we can stay in. I guess the if any of you watch Survivor, which I don't, that's basically the strategy. You either prove your usefulness to everybody else or you prove that someone else is dangerous to everybody else. And that's how you get to continue to play the game. And that's what these people were doing, essentially. They're trying to justify themselves to prove their own goodness, their own righteousness, partially by cutting down, speaking against, condemning their brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. They're still justified. Okay? This is not to say that while they are acting out of self-justification that they are obviously outside of Christ... He's speaking to people who, as far as he knows, are in Christ and in the church. But they're acting as if they are not in Christ. Many of you here are married. In those moments when you act like you're not married, whether it's how you spend your money or how you spend your time, do you suddenly not become married? Is it like you suddenly have to get remarried? Oh, you know, I didn't call you to tell you I was going to be home at 10 o'clock instead of 6 o'clock. Sorry about that, dear. You know, Or sorry I didn't call to tell you that I was about to spend $500 on stuff for me. Okay? Do you suddenly stop being married even though you've acted like you're not married? No. 
And it's the same thing here. It's not like you suddenly don't become a Christian just because you're not acting like a Christian. It doesn't mean that you, you're no longer justified because for a period of time you're seeking to justify yourself. Do you understand that? Because that is very important because there are Christian groups who will teach you otherwise, that you go in and out, and then you wonder, am I in today? What happens if I die right now? That takes the focus off of Christ and it puts it on you, which is not where it's supposed to be. So what happens, he says, is that there are higher stakes involved than just the mere personal, interpersonal relationships that are taking place. Not only do we judge our brothers, but he says, while you are doing this, you judge or condemn the law. It's as if when I speak against, say, my wife, I'm not just speaking against my wife. I'm speaking against my marriage. Or I can do it in such a way that I speak against marriage. So we're not sure whether he's talking about a specific law that is being spoken against or if it is in general the law that he is speaking against. But he's speaking against law, which is one of those words that he stresses throughout this text. If this is general, he's saying basically that the Old Testament teaches justification by faith. That's where Paul goes, right? Abraham. The Old Testament which is one of, the, one of the ways they refer to the Old Testament is to law and the prophets. And so he can be speaking in this general sense. And so to, to, to speak against the law in this sense means that you are condemning someone that Christ has justified. He or she can't be a Christian. Look at their sin. Look at how horrible they are. They can't be. What you're doing is you're actually condemning God and his gospel, which are found even in the law. Okay, you're saying there's no way <laughs> that they can be justified. And Jesus says, yeah, there is. Because it's all about my righteousness, not theirs. Or it could be about a specific, again, as I mentioned, in, in particularly in uh, Leviticus 19, where we find the first instance of that command to love your neighbor as yourself. But just before that, we find another command. We find this one in verse 16 of Leviticus 19. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor or as judge. I am the Lord. So it seems highly likely within the context of this passage that James has this in mind. Because this is exactly what the people were doing. They're acting as if they're God. And that's what pride does. It acts as if we are God. But what happens here is that we see that in their condemnation of others, they're not doing the law. They're breaking the law. They're the ones who also need the righteousness of Christ. So you see, do you understand Paul, uh, not Paul, James's argument here? 
they're not just sinning against their brother and sister, they're also sinning against God Himself in how they do this. They're not just condemning their brother and sister, they're also sort of condemning God Himself. And so pride sets us up as being above the law and the judge of all that we meet. Let's move to the solution. I've sort of alluded to it as I've gone on, but the solution is essentially that God saves us by justifying us. James reminds them about reality. There is only one lawgiver, and it isn't them. It is God himself. We exist under the law, not above the law. Who are we to condemn or judge the law? That God is the one who gave the law, which reveals his character. Do we really want to be in the position where we're condemning his character? That he's not right? Just that he's not good? And yet that is really what people do when they act that way. That God is the one, the only one, who has the authority and the power to judge people. There's one lawgiver. There's one judge. And ultimately, everyone will stand before that one lawgiver and judge. And James reminds us earlier on, in chapter 3, that we all stumble in many ways. So really, how do you want to show up? Do you want to show up clinging to little scraps of righteousness? Or do you want to show up in Christ's righteousness? How do you want to get there? What state do you want to be in when you get there? And yet, Oddly enough, these people... Judging other people. But listen to Paul in Romans 14. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. In Corinthians, Paul also says in in a parallel passage about the same subject, he says, I do not even judge myself. And so we can not only judge other people, but sometimes we can be guilty of judging ourselves. That's God's job to judge you. It's not your own. Okay? He is the judge. We will stand before him. When we do, there will be no injustice. There will be no false accusations. No lawyer saying, really, someone else did it. There will be no guilt that goes unpunished. The justice will be perfect. It will be complete. It will be righteous. James then reminds us that this one, this one lawgiver, this one job is able to save. That it is God who is the mediator of salvation by grace, not works, lest anyone should boast. He justifies or declares righteous all sinners who trust in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. 
The only way out of that cycle is to rest in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So where is your righteousness? Is it in your own goodness or is it in Jesus? If it's in Jesus, then James encourages us to live like it's in Jesus. To forsake the, when you, you know, the, the living like it's in your own. Forsake the self-justification that so easily pops up in our hearts. Remember things like Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we need to apply that to our own hearts when we sin. Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus, I'm not condemned for this. We need to apply this towards our brothers and sisters. Thanks be to God, they're not condemned because of this, because they're in Christ Jesus. This is good. Saves us so much anguish. Saves us so much frustration. I really need to believe this more. Okay, I'm with you. This one who was able to save is also, James says, able to destroy. That can have two meanings, both of which are reflected in what we read in the the Heidelberg Catechism this morning. It can mean to ruin. Similarly to how Casey uh, Anthony's parents' lives are essentially ruined with these accusations. How do you move on from that? That really you're the one who did it and you've been a molester for decades. How do you move on from that? If you're the babysitter who was accused of abandoning the children, how do you move on from that? This woman's life has been ruined. She, she can't get any more work. But it goes beyond mere earthly ruination. It can also mean to kill or to be put to death. And this is a legal context. And so that's the idea that is at work here most prevalently. James is speaking about the final and the absolute judgment. Casey Anthony will have another day in court before God. And I don't know what that verdict will be. Because between now and then, God may deliver her in Christ Jesus. Are you okay with that? You better be. Because none of us deserves to be saved. Not one of us. So God does oppose the proud, as he, James talked about. Those who refuse to repent will die. We need to know this. We need to believe this, that we might repent. And so in justification, God saves us from his wrath and our need to justify ourselves. What comes of this? What, how is this sort of meant to play out in the rest of our lives? We are to commend others for reflecting God's glory. That's really one way in which it plays out. One way in which I think James would is implied in what James has been saying here and in chapter 3. What would James have these people do? And what would he have us to do? I think that positive is implied by the condemnation of the negative. With our tongues, 
he says, we are to praise God, implying that we should also praise God, uh, all who reflect God's glory. That was one of the problems in chapter 3. The, the, same, the same tongue is praising God and cursing their brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, who are made in God's image. If they're made in God's image, what should we do when they properly reflect that image? Commend them for it. That's where I think Paul, uh, James would go. I don't know why I keep saying Paul this morning. Okay? But it's really James. When we live in light of our justification, which I've talked about a bit in the past, we do not condemn other people, but we begin to commend them. Our tongues are being sanctified, and the more they're sanctified, the more they're going to praise God, and the more they're going to praise others for His goodness in them. Okay, this is not you know some cheap attempt at, at self-esteem. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. Okay, this is not oh we should only feel good about ourselves. But this is about recognizing and affirming how that person reflects God's greatness. Okay, laying out before them specifics about how we see Christ's glory. In them. And so we commend others for their growth in grace. In other words, we commend them for Christ's work in them. We recognize how they're changing. We recognize that their, their, their character has been shifting over time. We praise Him and we praise them. Because God's at work, but also they're at work. We don't believe in a passive kind of sanctification. Okay, We believe in a synergistic kind of sanctification. Philippians chapter 2, talking about how they were to work out their salvation in fear and trembling. Why fear and trembling? Because God is at work in them to will and work according to His purpose. Okay? So we're recognizing God's at work in you. You're grown in grace. We commend them for that. We also commend others for their godly actions and their godly attitudes. In other words, we commend them for Christ's work, not only in them, but through them. Thank them for the faithfulness that reveals the faithfulness of Christ. Thank them for the kindness or the hospitality that reminds you of the kindness and hospitality of Jesus. How do you do that? It's pretty simple, actually. It can take take place in a note, a phone call, a, a comment to someone on the side. That's all it takes. But imagine how, for a moment, how different our relationships would be with such words. Think of how much more joy would be in a marriage or in a family or in a church 
where we are appropriately commending one another for their growth in grace and God's work through them. What a holy, happy place I think that would be. Okay? I'm going to commend you all for a moment. Is that great? I commend you precisely because I don't see the judging taking place. If it happens, it's, it's infrequent and I don't really notice it. You're not a group of people at this point in your lives who are attacking one another. Now, maybe I'm missing something. Okay? But I don't see that. When it happens, it's an exception, not the rule. I commend you for that. But I also encourage you to commend one another at home and here. So pride is the root of so many sins. When we do not rest in Christ's righteousness, we are tempted to tear others down so that we feel righteous. We attack people for sins both real and imagined. In short, we're playing God. But in justification, God delivers us from this need to defend and to destroy. And resting in the righteousness of Jesus, we begin to commend the sanctification of fellow believers. We begin to praise God for His work in and through our brothers and sisters. So let's pray. Father, as James noted earlier, every good and perfect gift comes from You, the Father of lights, with whom there is no change. And one measure of our growth in Christ is the sanctification of our tongue to the praise of the work of Christ in and through others. So I ask that our faith would be such that we do grow in this area. That we would commend one another. And by doing that, we would be rendering even more praise to you. Because ultimately, it comes from you. Change us, O oh God. That we would be even more pleasing in your sight. Because we look more like Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.